All right, let's take a look at Titus chapter 1. I'd like to read for us verses 5 to 16. Paul writes, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, the Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Let's pray. Father, would you open your word to us today? Help us to see how to live in Christ, how this applies to us and to our church. And Father, help us to understand the importance of godly leadership and what a difference that can make in a family, in our home, and in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. In January of 2012, the cruise ship Costa Concordia ran aground off the coast of Italy. Uh, you may remember seeing these pictures of this ship as it was on its side in the water, and it was a, a terrible maritime disaster. I mean, there were 4,200 people on board, 3,200 of those were passengers, 1,000 of them were the crew members on that ship, and sadly, 32 people died, including one couple from uh, White Bear Lake who had gone on their first cruise ever. And it was just a tragic disaster. Those who were on board said it was like a scene from the Titanic when they saw people panicking and trying to get out and to get above the waterline and get off the ship. And it was a disaster that never should have happened. The captain of the ship was sailing too close to the coast in what was known to be dangerous waters because of all the rocks that were there. And not only that, but before the people were off of the ship, he himself abandoned ship and left his post. And that captain's been charged with manslaughter and abandoning the ship. The captain failed in his leadership responsibility in so many ways and the results were disastrous. 
I think about the need for leadership. That's what we're going to be talking about today, and especially the need for leadership in the church. And in some ways, the church is like a ship sailing through dangerous waters. And it takes solid, godly leadership to stay the course, you know, know where you're headed, to avoid the rocks and not abandon the ship when things get tough. We need godly leadership in the church. Now, last week, Pastor Jim uh, gave just a good description of what life was like on the island of Crete. Uh, Crete is located in the Mediterranean. It's just south of Greece, south of the Aegean Sea there. And it's one of the larger islands in the Mediterranean. And Paul and Titus had been there on one of their missionary journeys. Uh, And Paul talked about the nature of this island as they tried to establish churches. And this was a a tough place, or as Jim used the word, this was a toxic environment in which they were trying to plant new churches. Paul said of their own prophets, uh, or quoted one of their own prophets, who said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's not a very favorable picture, is it, of the people who were on that island? In fact, in the Greek language of Paul's day, uh, there was a term that had come into the Greek vocabulary, and to cretize meant the same thing as to lie. I mean, they, they were just known in that regard as liars, as dishonest people, as being lazy and trying to take advantage of others. So imagine trying to start a church there. You know, you're looking at this environment and you're thinking, okay, we're going we're gonna to begin it. You know, God knows that uh, this is a place that needs some healthy churches. But how do you start? What do you do? Well, Paul instructs Timothy, I mean, excuse me, Paul instructs Titus here. Uh, we've been in Timothy so long, I'm still thinking about him. But Paul instructs Titus here that the first thing that I want you to do is to appoint elders to lead the church in every town. I want you to look for men who are worthy of that position who could lead the church in these difficult times. And that's what he goes through here. He begins by telling us that the church needs leaders with godly character. And we see that in verses 5 to 8. Again, Paul and Titus had visited this island on one of his voyages. Well, we don't have a good description of that in the book of Acts, so we don't know exactly when it happened. But it sounds like uh, Paul was not able to stay there very long. He continued on, and he left Titus in charge to appoint uh, elders to lead these churches and to finish what was left undone. There's a need to organize the church. There's a need to set up that kind of leadership that can make decisions, even though most of these churches, when we think of them, would be house churches meeting in an individual's home. And the common practice here was to appoint elders, plural, elders, plural, to give leadership to the church. It wasn't one individual who would give that leadership, but it would be a team of elders who would oversee the work that was going on in these different house churches. The reason for that, I think, should be evident that no one individual has all the gifts to do everything that a church needs, and there is a good reason to have uh, other elders or individuals involved so that they can work together in carrying out what needs to be done in leadership and in ministry. 
And what we see in this passage is that in verses 6 to 8, Paul gives a list of qualifications for elders. It is similar to what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul also gave a list. And we're just going to walk through these briefly. He tells us that an elder must be blameless. And sometimes when you say that word blameless, you know, at first look, you go, great, that wipes out everybody. You know, we're, we all are sinners. We all have areas in our life that we're working on. But what he means here by being blameless is that he must have a good reputation both inside and outside the church. Is this individual known as a person of character? Is he a good man? Is he the kind of person that you would trust to lead something like this? And in particular, they are to have a good reputation as a husband and as a father. He says that they are to be the husband of but one wife, faithful in his marriage. It doesn't mean that a single man could not be an elder. It was just that at that time, even as today, uh, most of the men who qualified would be older and likely would have a family. And so they were to be faithful in their marriage. Uh, and then he goes on to say that he used to have children who believe. And you look at that and you go, wow, children who believe. I mean, that's the desire that all of us want. Um, but we can't control the choices that our children may make as they get older. And there's been a lot of men who have been uh, scared by what is said here. Children who believe and also uh, children who are not wild and disobedient but who obey their father, who respect their father. And really, that's, that's more what that word believe in this case means. It means to be faithful. It means to be obedient or respectful. And that's exactly what Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, that an elder should be someone who manages his household well and that his children obey him with proper respect. Now, why is that? Why is Paul saying you need to look at their family? It is because if a man can't lead his family, how can he lead the church? That's the kind of first proving ground, if you will, or the first level of leadership is in the home. And so we're looking for uh, individuals in whom uh, they are good husbands, they are good fathers, and their children listen and respect them. And then he goes on to say that an elder is also an overseer. Same position, but overseer refers to the duties of an elder or his responsibility. The word elder suggests age or maturity, and so on the one side, you're looking for somebody who is spiritually mature. On the other side, you're looking for somebody who has leadership qualities. And he says that an elder is someone who is entrusted with God's work. This is the Lord's church. This isn't our church in a possessive way. This is God's church. And so we are to honor him in what we do. And again, he says he must be blameless, have a good reputation. And he goes through these lists of, again, qualities. He's not to be overbearing. In other words, he's not just pleasing himself. It's not all about me, if you will. Not quick-tempered, not someone who flares up in his temper at others. Not given to drunkenness, not overindulgent. Not violent, literally not a striker, somebody who would get into fights or kind of brawl or use force to get his way. He's not pursuing dishonest gain. He's not in it for selfish reasons. Instead, 
On the other side, he is to be hospitable, a person who opens his home and his heart to others. He's to love what is good and strive for it. He's to be self-controlled. In other words, he manages himself well. He's to be upright, living according to God's word, holy, which means devout or godly, and he is to be disciplined. Like an athlete in training, he studies the scriptures. He applies it to his own life. What you see when you look at a list like this is how important character is. Character matters in leadership. It matters definitely in the church. It should also matter in the world around us. And we also see how the choices we make will affect generations to come. You know, uh, some of you have heard this story that was shared many years ago. There was a study that was done on two families in America, the family of Max Jukes and the family of Jonathan Edwards, the evangelist, preacher, and revivalist. And it's an interesting story because of the contrast in these families in their line, and I'll just share a little bit of it briefly. Max Jukes lived in New York State. These are the years from the late 1700s into the 1800s. And they followed his family line, and they tracked what happened to over a 1,000 of his descendants. Max Jukes was an unbeliever, and he married a girl of like character and training. And out of that union from this couple came 300 in their family line who died prematurely. Of the ones that lived, 100, about 10%, spent time in the penitentiary for an average of 13 years each. 190 were public prostitutes. 100 were alcoholics. The family at that time cost the state of New York $1.2 million dollars and they made very little contribution to society. It's a tragic family line when you think of what happened there, how it began and how it continued. But on the other side, Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state. He believed in God and Christian training. He married a girl of like character. And from this union, 729 descendants were traced. 300 became preachers. 65 were college professors, 13 were presidents of universities, 60 were authors, 3 were elected to Congress, and 1 became vice president of the United States. I mean, the the difference is astounding there based upon choices that were made and what happened as that was passed on from generation to generation. That illustration came to mind for me because last weekend, Gail and I went back to my hometown for a family reunion. And it was uh, the descendants of my grandfather, Ole Stanghelly, and I had shared with you a story about him and how he came to this country from Norway and kind of what was passed on from him that I learned. Well, my grandfather had eight children, four boys, four girls, and out of those, about 50 of us gathered uh, for this family reunion. And actually, uh, last weekend, uh, I led a prayer service, kind of a worship service and prayer service in the country church where my grandfather worshiped. And that church has been moved to Warren. It's on what's called kind of a settler's fair, an old-time village that they've recreated. Uh, That church is no longer used regularly for worship, but for special events. And it's this small, little Lutheran church in which uh, he worshiped. 
One of my cousins who was there, you know, came in, and you can imagine this narrow church, seats maybe 50 people total, you know, going back. And he would say, you know, Grandpa sat right there, second row next to the window. This was his hymn book. He would put his glasses on the ledge, you know, when he didn't need them, and he would sit there, get a little fresh air coming through the window if it was hot outside or inside. And he talked about his faith, and I shared some other stories as well. But I will tell you, after meeting with my uh, relatives and hearing some of the stories and the differences there, um, it's just a broad range of what happened in people's lives and where they ended up. I mean, we have, we have in our family, we have pastors, teachers, medical workers, farmers, other professions, but we also have some lives that were really greatly ruined by alcoholism. And it's sad to think of what happened. Two of my dad's brothers were alcoholics. One, uh, never married, died as a bachelor, worked as a hired hand on a farm out in North Dakota. Another moved to Montana, kind of wanting to get away from the family. And he and his wife drank heavily, and they had a child who had fetal alcohol syndrome. They had another uh, child who died of alcohol poisoning. And uh, basically, the kids that were born to that family were raised by a grandmother. And it was really hard. And by God's grace, it was so neat to see the youngest who's closer in my age, you know, and what God has done in his life and how it's been turned around by God's grace. And it's just been a really neat story of redemption. But I came back from that reunion with the biggest takeaway for me was saying, thank you, God, for my father and the choice that he made not to drink. And I think about, you know, the difference. What if I had grown up in a home in which my dad was an alcoholic? I'd be a very different person today. But because of the choices that he made and the faith that he passed on and the other values I learned from him, you know, I am who I am by the grace of God. And I, I think about that when it comes to whether it's leadership in the church or leadership in the home. Godly leadership makes a huge difference. And the choices we make will affect generations to come. And so when we take the stand to live differently, to follow Christ, to break maybe patterns or cycles of sin in our family looking back, you're making a huge difference. It's going to bless your children and your children's children for generations to come. The church needs godly leaders. The church also needs leaders who will stand upon the truth of God's word. And we see that in verses 9 to 14. Uh, Paul tells us here that an elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So we need leaders who know what they believe. They know the gospel. They understand it. They understand that we are saved by grace. They know the truth of God's word, and they teach that. They need to be able to teach. In fact, that's one of the distinctions between an elder and a deacon is this requirement that an elder be able to teach. And here the reason is given so that he can encourage others in sound doctrine. And then thirdly, he is to be able to refute those who oppose the gospel. Those who would come along, they might distort it or add to it. And that's what was happening here. And Paul says in verse 10 that there are many rebellious people. There are mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. 
And these kind of itinerant or traveling false prophets, false teachers would come along and they'd ask to speak in the church. And you needed elders who were discerning. No, let me listen and hear what you are going to say. Because Paul will say later that they must be silenced. They are ruining whole households. Don't let these guys come into your house church. Don't let them preach and teach what they are preaching because they were adding to the gospel. They were saying, uh, you know, yes, it's good to believe in Jesus, but. Jesus, but. Jesus, but you need to be circumcised. Jesus, but you need to follow the law. Jesus, but you need to do this or this or this. How does that relate to us? Well, in our own day, there are those who would want to change the gospel as well. And anything or anyone that adds requirements to your salvation other than Jesus is a false gospel. It's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. But it's his work that's accomplished our salvation, not ours. It's not what we do. And when we come to know Christ, then the fruit of that change should be this changed life that delights to do what God wants us to do. These false teachers were ruining whole households, and they were doing it for the sake of dishonest gain. That was their real motive. Chuck Swindoll tells a story about a church that was near one that he served in Waltham, Massachusetts. And this church had a very interesting history when you went back through the pastors that had been there. And he talked about uh, this church that was just so troubled, it wasn't growing, it had been kind of declining for some time, and they called this uh, young pastor in who began to preach the gospel. And you can imagine uh, one of those older churches with the long, narrow nave and sanctuary, you know, and, and he said when he came to that church, everybody sat on the last two, three rows. And so what the pastor did was he picked up the pulpit and he walked down the row and he put it where they were sitting. And he began to teach the scriptures. And as he taught the scriptures and really new life came into that church, more and more people began to attend. And he kept moving the pulpit back and back and back until he was almost in the choir loft behind him. God filled that church, and it was wonderful to see. And then in time, God called this man uh, to actually one day serve as president of a seminary. Well, the guy who came in after him, and I don't know whether this was a church call or whether it was by appointment of a denomination, as some do it that way, but the guy who came in behind him looked like he had good credentials. He had two doctorates. Uh, this was a man who had uh, served in a number of churches, and he came in but he was a contentious man. He was a fighter. He was not a person who had good people skills and also his teaching was not very good. And what Chuck Swindoll said was in that church, you could almost move the pulpit the other direction as people began to leave. He alienated and offended so many people that Chuck said by the time he was there at this neighboring church, he said, I'd drive by and I'd see maybe six or eight or maybe 10 cars at the most. And he said, I felt like you could have written across that church, Ichabod, that the glory of the Lord had departed from this place. Leadership makes a difference. What we teach makes a difference. Biblical teaching and sound doctrine are essential to a healthy church. If we don't have that, we have nothing to say to the world around us. 
If we don't have a gospel that is true, we have no hope. No hope to give to the world that's desperate to hear what God has said. I like what Jack Graham, pastor of Prestonwood Baptist in Dallas, has said. He gave this advice to young men starting out in ministry. He said, fill the pulpit first and trust God to fill the church. Fill the pulpit and trust God to fill the church. Do your work faithfully to preach and teach the word of God, and God will do his work. And thirdly, the church needs leaders whose actions are consistent with their beliefs. Leaders who are not hypocritical, but leaders who are genuine. You can see the difference that God has made in their life, and we see that in verses 15 and 16. He writes it to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him, and they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. He sets up a contrast here, and it takes a little bit to maybe look at this and kind of think about what does he mean there, to the pure all things are pure. What he's saying is that for the believer, all of life is enjoyed as a gift from God. He's not saying that to the pure, even sin is pure, you know, because if you have the right attitude. No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying for those that are a believer, again, all of life takes on this holiness. Our work is done to the glory of God. When we enjoy, say, going camping or enjoy the outdoors, we see God's hand in the world that he's made and we worship him. When we're thinking about our family, we think about our kids and their relationship with God, and we love them as God loves us, and we want them to know him, and we teach them, and we share. It just flows out of our life and our heart. It's not hard to do this because we love God. And so God blesses everything, our enjoyment of food, our enjoyment of the world that he's made, our relationships with one another, our work. We see it all as coming from God's hands, and it's pure. And we give thanks to God in our worship, our praise, our prayers. But for the unbeliever, nothing's pure because they don't know God. And it's just the opposite. They don't see this world in which we live as a wonderful gift, the handiwork of God. They don't see that the abilities or skills that they have been given are gifts from God. They think that all of this is their own doing. Or they look at, at life and they look at the future and they think, is this all there is, you know? And there can be this hopelessness and despair. There's no giving thanks to God. And nothing is pure because it all starts with our relationship with him. It's also what Pastor Jim was talking about last week when he described the tremendous freedom we have as believers. I mean, we have been set free from sin. We're set free from addiction, free from being slaves to the culture around us, uh, free from being slaves to our work. We are free to worship. We are free to live. We are free to love. We are free to give. I mean, all of these things that come, and that brings great joy. The folly of the false teachers is evident. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. And he says that the elders in the church are not to be like that. The elders or leaders in a church are to be of good character, men who love God, who can teach the scripture and are an example to the flock. And let me share just 
two very practical reasons why we need that, why we want that. You know, I think about what that does for us as a church is number one, we want to know that change is possible and that the gospel really does change lives. I think about how when I was younger and growing up in the church or how uh, when Gail and I were first married, we were involved in a church out in New England that had some just dear, godly saints who had been part of that church for years. And we looked to them. You know, we looked to them uh, as examples, which is really the second reason, too. We want examples to follow. And we looked to them as examples in marriage or parenting, in Christian service and ministry, uh, in missions, in evangelism, discipleship, in stewardship or hospitality, in leadership. You know, we want to see that God can change lives and we want others that we can look to as an example to follow. We need that, especially as a young Christian or a new believer. We want to look to others and see what God's done in their life. But the only way that that really becomes clear is if we are willing to share our story. It's those faith stories of the change that God has made in your life and mine that inspires us and gives us hope. Because sometimes people come into a church and they look around and they think that everybody else has got their life together and they don't realize maybe the struggles you went through, the difficulties that you faced, or the background that you came out of. But by the grace of God, he has changed you and you are a new person in Christ. I'd encourage you in the settings as you have opportunity, whether it's in an ABF or small groups, to share your story. Or when you see somebody else who's struggling and you've gone through a similar thing, then maybe there's an opportunity for you to come alongside and to share what God has done in your life. We need examples. We live in a toxic world that affects all of us in the church. Sometimes our life, our marriage, or our family isn't what God wants it to be either. And we need his grace. And I would say to you, don't give up because there is a truth that leads to godliness. That's what God's word is about. And when God's word gets a hold of our life and we begin to put it into practice, there are changes that come. So walk in that truth. And where there is sin, repent of it, turn from it, and obey the truth. Would you also pray for the leadership of our church and pray for the pastors, the elders, the ministry leaders in our church, that we would be of good character, faithful and obedient, that we would walk with God and that we'd be honest and open about what's going on in our life, that God would use us to be a blessing to others. And then finally, I think about personal application questions. Would you ask yourself these questions? Number one, am I growing in Christ-likeness? And do others see Jesus in me? What would they say of your life and how things are going? And do they see your progress in the faith? Secondly, am I growing in my knowledge of the word and in sound doctrine? Or are there areas where you feel like, boy, you know what, I'd really like to do a study in this area, or I still don't quite understand it all, and I'd like to know the Bible better? Well then, hey, this fall, get into an ABF, get into a Discipleship Explored group, or the Truth Project, or some of the other things that'll be offered. 
where you can grow stronger in your faith? And then thirdly, are my actions consistent with what I believe? Is there a consistency that others can see in me that I'm being faithful and obedient and making progress in the Christian life? Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence, it always amazes me how timeless your word is and how the things that were going on for Paul and Titus and the island of Crete are very much like the world in which we live. And there are competing values and claims being made on our life. And Jesus, we want to follow you. And I pray that you would help all of us to be growing in our, our knowledge of your word, in our character, our conduct, that the things that others might see in us would be reflections of Jesus. And so, Father, would you encourage each one who's here this morning and help us to take these words to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.